Hello, everyone. Welcome back. You're listening to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. I'm your host, Kadra. Thanks for joining me for part three of three. We're finally getting to that final chapter, guys. This has been a three-part series about the I-45 killings. If you missed last week and the week before, parts one and two, go back and listen to those. (laughs) You need to listen to those to follow the full story, trust me. Uh, Last week, we covered the Texas killing fields, and the week before that, I talked about the 11. Definitely check those out if you missed them. And if you like what you've been hearing on the podcast, leave a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. It's super easy. Just click the star rating option when you pull up the podcast. If you want to type out a review, that's amazing as well. I would appreciate it very much. Leaving reviews really helps the podcast, boosts it up the algorithms. Please do that. If you haven't already, you can also follow the podcast. That way you know when new episodes have been released. And if you have a crazy story you want to share with me, or you have a request, email me at perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail. You can also follow me on Instagram, perplexitymysterypodcast. To make sure we have time to dive into this episode, the sources for today are going to be in the show notes. Check those out if you want to learn more. Trigger warning, content warning, this is going to be disturbing, upsetting. We will be discussing murder, violence, sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised for listeners below the age of 13. First, we are going to talk about a man named William Reese. Reese was born on July 5th, 1959, and he grew up on a farm in Yukon, Oklahoma. He came from a very large family. He had 12 brothers and sisters, and by the ninth grade, he had dropped out of school. He had started to shoe horses. He also bounced from foster care to foster care, but it also said he had a close relationship with his mom. So I'm not sure about all that, but it sounds like he had kind of a messy childhood. And when he was 19 in 1979, he got married. He married a woman named Judy Fleming. Fleming said she left William because he was cheating on her. She did end up going back to him, though, and they had a son and a daughter. And in 1982, Judy filed for divorce. And this is when William got really violent. Judy said he broke into her house. He beat her up. He put a knife to her throat. And then he threw her down and put a shotgun to her head. Luckily, he did not kill her, though. He did end up moving on, and he got married again, and he got divorced again. And in the spring of 1986, a 19-year-old college student from the University of Oklahoma was driving to her job. She was an aerobics instructor, and her car started to stall out on the highway. It was also raining that day, and she noticed that there was a mall and a hotel nearby, but there was a really tall fence, and that made it impossible for her to reach this area unless she climbed it. 
So while she's considering climbing this fence to get help, a semi pulled up next to her and a man offered to help her. And this man was William Reese. But instead of him driving her to get help, he pinned her down to a mattress in the truck. So she asks him, you know, why are you doing this to me? And he told her that he was crazy. So William then duct taped her arms behind her back and put her in an orange sleeping bag. He drove off and then he stopped after a while and he forced her to perform oral sex on him. Afterwards, he pulled his pants up and told her how much he loved her and how he had been feeling lonely. And he said they were going to live together forever in Houston. So she manages to escape by gaining his trust and he eventually lets her go to the bathroom. He also gave her a quarter to make a phone call and he gave her a kiss. So she gets away, she calls her family. Her father was a deputy sheriff. Within a month, while waiting for trial for kidnapping and oral sodomy charges, Reese raped another woman that he followed home from a bar. Reese was later convicted on the kidnapping and oral sodomy case. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison, but he only served nine years and was released in October of 96 after an appeals court reduced his sentence because of improper comments made by a prosecutor. So Reese then found work shoeing horses and doing construction work, you know, those jobs that didn't require background checks. And he would haul heavy construction equipment and he would drive back and forth between Oklahoma and Texas. He would often drive along I-45. He eventually would become a suspect in the kidnapping and rape of a 22-year-old woman from Houston, Texas. She was at a gas station late at night and she felt like someone was following her. This is when a truck pulled up behind her and a man approached her. The man then dragged her to the woods, strangled her, and sexually assaulted her. The woman, however, did not die. She survived by playing dead. She also was able to pick William Reese out of a lineup, but he was never charged with her attack. Don't worry, guys. It gets worse. So, of course, these are not William Reese's only victims. He was a suspect in several other rape cases. And one day on April 3rd in 1997 in Friendswood, Texas, 12-year-old Laura Smither took a jog before breakfast around 9 a.m. And Laura was an adorable young girl with brown hair and braces. She was a ballerina and her mother, Gay Smither, homeschooled her. Laura was really excited because she had just recently gotten into a really prestigious ballet academy and she didn't like running, but she had been trying to build up some endurance for her ballet. Her mom 
reluctantly agrees to let her go jogging. The jog was only supposed to take about 20 minutes, but when an hour went by and she still hadn't returned, her parents, Bob and Gay Smither, became very concerned. Bob Smither would sometimes ride bikes with Laura along a bike route nearby, so he went along that route thinking maybe Laura had run over there, but she wasn't there. So the Smithers report their daughter missing, and they talk to neighbors and locals, and that same day, people go out searching for Laura. So on April 8th, 1997, the search continued for Laura. A family friend named Michael became the head of the search party, and by this time, around 6,000 people joined the search, including the FBI, the National Guard, and other volunteers including Tim Miller. So Tim Miller, for those of you who don't remember, was the father of Laura Miller, who we talked about in part two, who founded his own nonprofit, EquiSearch. So yeah, he helped in the search for Laura Smither. On April 20th, a town meeting was called at a local high school auditorium. And while one of the detectives is speaking, a note was handed to the chief of police, who was sitting next to Michael, the man leading the search party. The chief of police then looks at Michael and says, I gotta go. So at that point, everyone kind of knew something had happened. And a man and his son had been walking around near a retention pond in Pasadena with their dogs, and they had smelled a foul odor. At first, they thought it might be a dead animal, but as the man's son pointed out, quote, animals don't wear socks. So the police arrive and they find the decomposed body of a young female, which would later be identified as Laura Smither. Laura was missing for 17 days, which Gay Smither described in the Texas Killing Field documentary as, quote, 17 days of hell. Laura was found about 12 miles from where she went missing. The only clothing that Laura had on were her socks. The medical examiner's office determined she had been beaten and strangled to death. As police begin investigating, they find a man nearby that is a known sex offender, and they bring him in for questioning. This man's name, you might ask? William Reese. So at this point, William is 38 years old. He's working in construction. And the area he's working in is very close to Laura's home. He had also, remember, just gotten released from prison one year prior, in October of 96. It had rained the day that Laura disappeared. So when he reported for work, he was let off early. And he left work around the same time that Laura disappeared. But then he reported back to his job site about 30 minutes later, even though they had just let him go early. So why would he come back? To build an alibi, perhaps? So William Reese became the prime suspect in Laura's murder and police were pretty confident he was responsible, but there was not a lot of evidence to try him. So time passes, and now we are going to travel several hours north to Denton, Texas. 
this is just 10 minutes from where I went to college because this takes place at the University of North Texas area. I went to Texas Woman's University and I also lived in Denton for six years. So this case is pretty close to home. Uh, there was a 20 year old student that went to the University of North Texas, UNT. Her name was Kelly Ann Cox and Kelly was majoring in psychology with a minor in criminology. She also had a toddler and on July 15th, 1997, Kelly took a field trip to the Denton jail for her criminology class and she disappeared from the parking lot. The professor had told the students that they weren't allowed to bring anything into the jail. So he told them to either hide their keys, get someone to drop them off or take a taxi. So Kelly decided to drive and she hid her key with a hideaway key, which was this little magnet that you can place under your car. She does that and they tour the prison. And after the class finished the tour, Kelly called her boyfriend, concerned because her car key wasn't working. So she asked her boyfriend to come help her. And when he arrived, Kelly's car was there, but Kelly wasn't. Kelly's car key and the key hideaway box were also missing. So early on in the investigation of Kelly's disappearance, William Reese became a suspect. Investigators found a paper trail that put him in Denton during the time that Kelly disappeared. They found a gas station receipt and investigators did try to search for physical evidence as well, like dusting Reese's car for fingerprints, but nothing concrete was found at that time. They also could not find Kelly's body. Then, in late July of 1997, Tiffany Johnson, a 19-year-old newlywed that had just moved with her husband Ryan to the suburbs of Bethany, Oklahoma, disappeared. She had gone to work that day at a restaurant called El Chico's. She got off work around 2 p.m., and then she went to her second job called Sight and Sound, which was similar to like a Best Buy. And then she got off work, went home to celebrate her three month wedding anniversary. And I guess on her way home, she stopped to get her car washed. And that was the last time that anyone saw her. Her husband went out looking for her. Around midnight that night, Tiffany's mother got a phone call from the Bethany Police Department asking if Tiffany was with her, and she was not. Her car was found abandoned at the car wash. In her car, investigators found her pager, her ID, and her paycheck. The car doors were also left open, and the car mats were hanging on the rack to be cleaned. Eyewitnesses did say they remembered seeing her at the car wash, but no one saw what happened to her. Tiffany's body was found quickly. It was found near Yukon, Oklahoma, about 10 miles away from Bethany. An autopsy confirmed she had been sexually assaulted. She had trauma to her head and shoulders, and her cause of death was strangulation. On August 17, 1997, in Lamarck, Texas, 17-year-old Jessica Kane goes missing. This was one week before she was supposed to start her freshman year at Sam Houston University. 
She had been at a theater cast party the night before and never returned to her home in Tiki Island, Texas. So her mother reported her missing. Friends of Jessica saw her leave the party around 1.30 a.m. She had been out celebrating at a Bennigan's restaurant after her performance of Oklahoma at the local community theater. She had given a ride to a friend, and after dropping the friend off, Jessica got onto Highway 45. Her father ended up finding her car abandoned on the side of the highway. Her wallet was still in her truck. Weeks go by, and many people join the search, including Laura Smithers' parents and Tim Miller. But despite countless weeks and months of searching, Jessica's body is not found. Police Chief Sue Dietrich Nance of Tiki Island was called in to help with the case of a woman named Sandra Spa. Sandra was 19 years old and pregnant, and she had been abducted outside of a waffle house in Webster, Texas. She had managed to escape by jumping out of her attacker's car. Sue Dietrich Nance specialized in hypnotizing victims of trauma to help them recover information that their subconscious might be hiding. Sandra initially was so traumatized that she couldn't recall a lot of information, but when she was hypnotized by Sue, she was able to recall many details about her attacker. Sandra said she had pulled up to a convenience store in the morning to buy a couple of things and she noticed a man had been following her inside. She went across the street to the Waffle House and her attacker then pulled up next to her and asked if she needed some help. She was confused and asked him why. And he said, because you have a flat tire. He then got out of the car and dragged her at knife point to his truck, taking off onto Highway 45 and driving at highway speed. At some point, he told her to take her clothes off and she bent down to untie her shoes and realized the door of the truck was unlocked. So in that moment, she realizes he's going to kill her. So she can either risk her life and jump out and potentially escape the situation or stay there and be tortured. So she jumps out of the truck, but she was dragged underneath the truck for several miles. She miraculously survived all of this. What bugs me about this, though, is I was not able to find anything about what happened to her unborn child if she was actually pregnant. So, unfortunately, I'm not sure what happened there. But Sandra survived, and a few weeks after Sandra was hypnotized, Sue stopped by the Friendswood Police Department to talk to them about the prime suspect and Laura Smithers case. This is when Sue learns about William Reese. So later that night at about 3 a.m., Sue had an epiphany. She realized the man Sandra Spa was describing perfectly fit the description of William Reese. Sue then called the police chief and tells him about this. Sue had also been able to hypnotize the store clerk that had seen Sandra that night 
and the clerk described a truck parked next to Sandra's that matched the description of Reese's truck. The Friendswood police then took William Reese in for a lineup, and Sandra was able to pick him out. Inside of his truck, investigators found strong evidence. So during Sandra's hypnosis, she was able to recall details about the inside of the truck, and one of the things she said is that she remembered seeing these pieces of paper on the glove box, and she remembered there were numbers written on them. And she was able to recall four or five of the numbers. When police searched William Reese's truck, they found a lot of post-it notes that had numbers written on them. And they were overlapping each other, so you could only see about four or five of the numbers. So at this point, they have enough evidence and William Reese is arrested and charged with aggravated kidnapping. And in 1998, the trial begins. Sandra did take the stand and testified, and Reese claimed this had all been blown out of proportion, and he showed absolutely no signs of remorse. Sue Dietrich Nance also testified, and the jury found evidence and testimonies very compelling, and they found Reese guilty. He was sentenced to 60 years in prison, but years have passed and the families of Laura Smither, Kelly Cox, Tiffany Johnson, and Jessica Kane still do not have justice. In 2012, Tiffany's mom calls the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation and asks for help in Tiffany's case. So a new detective takes the case named Lynn Williams and he starts delving deep into Tiffany's case, reanalyzing all of the evidence. After ruling out dozens and dozens of suspects, eventually William Reese becomes a person of interest. So it turns out Tiffany's mother actually knew William Reese's mother. So William's mother used to do Tiffany's mother's ironing and just after Reese had been released from jail in 1996, Tiffany's mom met William, but his mother and him never made it seem like it was a big deal that he had been in jail. So Tiffany's mother never considered that he could have been in jail for something serious or that he could have been responsible for what happened to Tiffany. In fact, when Tiffany went missing, William Reese called Tiffany's house and said he was so sorry about the loss of their daughter and that he didn't kill her. Tiffany's mom was in so much shock at this time, she really didn't put these things together. William's mother also did the ironing for Tiffany's clothes for her, her funeral service. How messed up is that? So Tiffany's mom believes that William Reese's mother knew that he killed Tiffany. And the reason she thinks this is because every year on the anniversary of Tiffany's death, Tiffany's mom would find these small trinkets on Tiffany's headstone. And when William Reese's mother died, the trinkets stopped coming. William Reese had never actually met Tiffany, but Tiffany's mom had shown them pictures of Tiffany before, so he would have known what she looked like. So in 2015, there was a big break in Tiffany's case. Because of advancements in DNA, 
swabs that had been collected from the state medical office during Tiffany's initial autopsy were retested. So a DNA profile came back and it matched William Reese. A year prior, in 2014, the Friendswood Police Department started to look back at Laura Smithers' case and re-examine it as well. They found that in 1997, there were documents created with the intent to search Reese's home, as well as phone bills and gas receipts. So this helped them put a timeline together, and using phone records, they were able to place William Reese in Oklahoma the day before Tiffany disappeared. Records also put him in close proximity to where her abduction took place. So the records the next day proved that he then went back to Texas. So in September of 2015, William Reese is charged with the kidnapping and murder of Tiffany Johnson. William denied being responsible. And a few weeks before his trial, he started to confess to other murders. He basically wanted to make a deal. And in February of 2016, Texas Ranger James Holland interviews William Reese in prison in Huntsville, Texas, where he was serving his sentence in Sandra's kidnapping case. So Holland brought pictures with him of Laura Smither, Kelly Cox, Tiffany Johnson, and Jessica Kane. And he asked Reese, who do I need to speak to in regards to these cases? And William kind of takes his hand over all the pictures. And then he says, all of them. When William is interrogated about what happens to Kelly Cox, he claimed they bumped into each other, like literally bumped into each other at a grocery store when he was walking out and that she spilled her Coke all over him. And he said he started cussing at her. So she hit him with a plastic bottle. And so he slapped her. Then he said he grabbed her around the neck and started choking her, which I believe that, but not anything else he just said. <laughs> Remember, Kelly Cox disappeared from the Denton prison. He also conveniently said there were no eyewitnesses to this. <laughs> and this grocery store was just two blocks away from a police station and it was broad daylight. <laughs> and also, how is this a better story? Like, how does this make you look like less of a piece of shit. So police obviously did not buy this story. In 2016, William was temporarily transferred to Friendswood Jail so that he could lead investigators to Kelly's remains. One of the people who helped in this was none other than our friend and local hero, EquiSearch founder Tim Miller. So after days of digging, they did not find her remains. So William then gave out a second location of where he had buried Jessica Kane. The second location was a small field in southeast Houston near an airport. 
He said the night that Jessica disappeared, he was eating and drinking at the Bennigan's restaurant where she had been for her theater cast party. He said when he got into his Jeep, he heard someone arguing with Jessica. And then the next thing he knew, Jessica slammed her car door into his Jeep and he started yelling at her. He then claimed that Jessica flipped him off and they got into an argument. He then said he drove away and he got on I-45 towards Galveston and all of a sudden Jessica pulled up behind him and was getting out of her car. <laughs> and he said she started yelling at him again and he just, he lost it and he got out and hit her. Now, William Reese lived in the opposite direction of where his truck was going, and he was going towards the direction of where Jessica Kane lived. So he was very obviously following her and making up this whole story. By the way, Jessica Kane's car was found only two miles away from her home. So he then said he put Jessica in his Jeep, but he didn't remember if she was breathing or not. So he took her off to a stable barn. At some point he had stolen a bulldozer, I guess from his construction job, and he buried Jessica Kane's remains out there. So after weeks of digging, they do find the remains of Jessica Kane. And a few weeks later, Kelly Cox's remains were also found. It took police 19 years to find Kelly Cox's remains. So eventually, William Reese is put in a jail in Friendswood, Texas. And during his time in Friendswood, they said he was very respectful to the officers. He did maintenance work for the jail. Everyone in the jail that had interactions with him said that he came off very normal and like the type of guy you would hang out with after work and get a beer with. The reason that William Reese didn't want the death penalty is because he couldn't stand the idea of being on death row and being isolated. He wanted to be able to talk to people and be social. Friendswood police <laughs> turned William Reese back over to Oklahoma to face charges in the murder of Tiffany Johnson, and they were hoping for the death penalty. In September of 2016, William was indicted for the murders of Laura Smither and Jessica Kane. In 2017, he was indicted in Kelly Cox's murder, and it would take five years for him to be indicted in Tiffany Johnson's case. This was because Oklahoma went through six judges and five district attorneys before he could be brought to trial. On top of that, COVID hit, which put a lot of legal processes behind. There were tons of delays. So during the time when William Reese was waiting before he could be brought to trial for Tiffany's case, he was still in jail and he even got a trustee position on the medical floor. So he was a very trusted inmate and he was let in and out of his cell often. He socialized with inmates daily, just ridiculous. So finally, in May of 2021, a jury was selected and prosecutors announced that they would be seeking the death penalty. The trial was three and a half weeks 
And during the trial, William Reese, of course, denied sexually assaulting Laura, Kelly, or Jessica. Um, he only admitted to sexually assaulting Tiffany, but the evidence proved that he sexually assaulted all of them. In Laura Smithers' case, he claimed when he left her body, she was fully clothed, which, okay. And he talked about what he claimed happened with Laura. He said he hit Laura on accident with his truck. And when he went down to the ditch to check on her, he thought she was dead, but instead he found her crying and yelling. So he started to panic and he tried to get her to quit screaming. So he put his hand over her mouth. And because she was facing away from him, when he turned around, he heard her neck pop and she went quiet. So then he said he put her in his truck and he took her to the retention pond. And this is when he claimed that he took her clothes off and put her in the pond. Is that not like the worst story you've ever heard? Like this guy's such an idiot. In Tiffany's case, he said he was at the car wash cleaning out his trailer and he accidentally sprayed her with water and he thought that she had said something and apparently then they got into an argument and they somehow ended up in his trailer. And then he claimed she tried to have sex with him. And then he changed his story and said that it was actually him who initiated the sex. And then he said he zipped up his pants when they were done and for some reason she hit him in the head with a horseshoe that he had in the trailer. And then he said he wrapped a cord around her neck and pulled it tight and killed her. So again, the only thing I believe in that is how he killed her. <laughs> Oklahoma is one of the few states that allows testifying and bringing in victims from other states during the guilty or innocent phase of a trial. So they were able to bring in multiple victims to testify and these were victims that he had raped and they had escaped and survived. After the trial, the jury deliberated for an hour, which that's about as long as it takes to fill out the paperwork. So they were pretty confident in their decision, it sounds like, and they found him guilty. They also recommended the death penalty. <laughs> and in August of 2021, he was sentenced to death. William Reese, has not faced charges in Texas, and those cases are still pending. He is on death row in Oklahoma, and Laura Smithers' family said they are at peace with him not being tried in Texas as long as he stays in death row and locked away. But in Kelly Cox's case, their family really wants him to be tried for her case so that they can get closure and he can be held accountable. So they're really pushing for that. But from what I could find so far, there's no updates yet with that, um, with those charges. So in April of 1998, so going back, uh, Laura Smithers' parents started a nonprofit. They named it the Laura Recovery Center. And according to Wikipedia, the Laura Recovery Center is a nonprofit organization that works to prevent kidnappings and abductions and to recover victims of such events. The center is located in Friendswood, Texas. The center originally focused on education, 
training law enforcement and organized community searches related to child abduction and child safety. But as of 2013, this foundation is no longer active in recovering missing children. The Laura Recovery Center has organized numerous community-led searches for abducted children, including those for Danielle Van Dam and Morgan Harrington. The search for Van Dam was the group's first out-of-state effort, and it was one of the largest volunteer search efforts in California history. With hundreds of volunteers searching deserts, highways, and remote areas for weeks, a volunteer party organized by the center found her body. Investigators believe that William Reese was guilty for all of these murders and that he had many more victims. And who knows if William Reese would have ever been brought to justice had it not been for the incredibly resilient survivors, such as Sandra Spa and many more. And that is the story of the serial killer William Reese and the I-45 murders. Oh my gosh. I'm very glad to be done with that three-part series. <laughs> Obviously, it's it's an incredibly important story to share and a lot of interesting things, but I, it's just so heavy. So the next time that I do an episode, it's definitely going to be something lighter, <laughs> more, more fun. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you did, share the link with a few of your friends and family. Leave a five-star review. Follow the podcast. And remember, if you have requests for stories or you want to share a crazy story with me that I'm happy to read on the podcast, email me, perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram, perplexitymysterypodcast. As always, thank you guys so much for listening. You are amazing. Have an awesome week, and I will talk to you guys soon. Bye.